Well, this morning, as you turn to Mark chapter 8, that's where we're going to spend our time in the scriptures this morning. I'm going to read to you from a different passage of scripture to begin our time to prepare us um, for what we're going to hear. But if you want to turn in your Bibles, there should be a Bible in front of you. You can pull it out. Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to be studying this morning. But I'm going to read to begin our time from Matthew chapter 25. Um, It'll be on the screen above me. Um, I'm going to read verses 34 through 40. And this is kind of the text that sets the tone for what we're going to see Jesus do in Mark 8 in our study. This is what happens as Jesus is teaching. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to begin with, I don't know if this is a hot take, but I'll just say it's just kind of like right out there in, in, in a bold statement that some, it's something that I think we need to grab hold of this morning before we can continue in this study. Apathy is unchristian. I'll say it again. Apathy is unchristian. To not care, to lack interest, to be unconcerned with the lives of our, our brothers and sisters within the church and disinterested in the state of lost souls and those the lives of those who are around us, is to deny the character of God in whose image that we've been made, the God who gave everything to save those who were dead in their trespasses and sin. God didn't just come to save the worthy. In fact, none were worthy. All of us were unworthy, and the wages of our sin was death, and Jesus came all the same and died on the cross to save us. And so to be apathetic towards those around you is unchristian. It's not just like frowned upon in Christian circles. It is unchristian to be apathetic and to not care about those around you. And I think while most of us would claim to not be apathetic, if I went up to somebody and said, you know, Jeremy, do you care about Scott who's sitting next to you? He might sarcastically look at me and be like, no. <laughs> but he'd be, he'd be lying because he cares about Scott, right? And you're like, yes, these are two people who are actually in the room. So... As you think of it, it's like, oh, brother, you, they're shaking. Oh, look at that. You guys are going to have to have lunch later. Okay. Individually, it's great. We sit with lifestyle. But you guys, I believe that unbeknownst to us, at time, into an aisle. In reality, we live at times apathetic lifestyles. Uche Anazor, which is just fun to say. That's a guy's name. Uche Anazor, he's an associate professor of theology at Biola. He said this, apathy is not careless. It is care adrift, care misplaced. As another writer puts it, our culture is a a breeding ground for chronic apathy due to the proliferation of distractions available to us. Let me just break that down. Your cell phone is distracting you from being empathetic. It is creating apathy in your life if you allow it. Sorry, that was my insertion. Let me finish his quote. We're regularly invited to care, just not too much or about too important a matter. 
In fact, our busyness may serve only to exacerbate our disengagement from meaning and to keep our spirits in a state of lethargy. If you're like, exacerbate? What that means is to make something worse. Okay? Our busyness is actually working against, you guys, what God has called us to do. It disengages us from meaning, and it keeps our spirits in a state of lethargy when we're not prioritizing the people around us. How many of us are too busy for others? How many of us have too many goals or too many things that we have to get done that we have to forsake being with other people or forsake those who God has placed in our care? Church, we need to be aware and not too quick to justify our busy schedules. When was the last time that you were talking to a friend of yours and you were like, I'm just so busy. I I can barely find time to do anything outside of my schedule. And they were like, dude, I'm like doing nothing. Have you had a conversation with somebody like that recently? I don't hear that from anybody. In fact, it becomes this one-upmanship game. We're like, oh, yeah? Well, I'm so busy. I haven't eaten in four days. And you're like, yeah? Well, I'm so busy. I haven't breathed yet. You know, and it gets to this thing where we start competing over who's busier. And, and I agree with Uche. I think, I like saying it. I agree. I'm with Uche. I need a shirt that says I'm with Uche. I agree with him that our busyness is not making us better. Our busyness is not making us healthier. In fact, it's creating an apathetic heart towards others. We need to slow ourselves down. We need to quiet ourselves and we need to start looking around saying, who is in need around me? You guys, we cannot be too quick to justify our busy schedules, our distracted lifestyles, but we need to examine ourselves. And here's three quick things I just want to challenge us all to do. And this is still introduction. I apologize. Here's three things I want to challenge us to do right off the bat. I want you to ask these questions of yourself, and if you need to snap a picture, it's okay to pull up your phone in church and snap a picture of something. That's okay. Just not me. First question, am I making time to pray and seek the Lord in his word? Am I making time to spend time with the Lord? Number two, am I investing in my home and my church family? Am I investing in the people that God has placed in my home? And am I investing in the lives of those that I have fellowship with in the church? Whose life are you pouring into in the church? So many of us do one or the other really well. You see people that serve in the church so much, they don't have time for their families. Or you see people who do vice versa. They serve their families so much, they don't have time to serve the people in the church. And we go through seasons where we can have a a stronger focus in either or direction. But we need to seek to find balance to serve not only people in our home, but our church family. So many people that I talk to today will say, I just want to be a church like like the church in the book of Acts. Then read the end of Acts chapter 2. When it says they did not forsake gathering. They didn't forsake being together. They stayed in the word together. They spent time in prayer. They fellowshiped. And you know what else they did? They ate. Church, we need to eat together more. Who wants to start rounding people up to do potlucks? Because we need to do that. We need to eat together more. It's part of the early church dynamic. And you're like, now that's something I can get on board with. Well, there's other things too. But if you're coming for the food, you're going to get the fellowship, the prayer, and the word. Right? We need to do this, you guys. This is important. And the other question I want to ask is this. Am I impacting the lost in my sphere? 
Am I impacting the lives of those? And when I say the lost in my sphere, I'm talking about non-believers. What kind of an impact are we having on the community, the unbelieving community around us? These are questions of self-examination that we need to be asking ourselves regularly. Am I making time for prayer in the word? Am I investing in the home and in the church? And am I impacting the lost in my community? Too much activity can fill our lens. Too many things that we fill our lives with that are not that important. Or maybe we're so distracted with a situation and we're hyper-focused on it and we're missing out on the opportunities that God's giving us around it. We can lose sight, I think, as the church of what's most important in God's eyes. And if I'm overlooking a person to get a program going, then this church will die. And that's the reality of it. If we are overlooking people to get a better program, then we're off and this church will die. Oh, it may flourish on the outside and look good, but the body inside will be malnourished and unloved and uncared for. Jesus sees the needs of people. When you read this gospel account, as many of us have been through this verse by verse all the way through chapter 7, Jesus sees the needs of others. All throughout the gospel account of Mark, we've watched as Jesus has seen people. And he doesn't just see them. He cares for them. He has compassion on them. He liberates them. He feeds them spiritually and physically. Jesus cares about all the needs of the people. When Jesus was confronted with a lost soul or a tired body, notice this in the gospels. He always jumps into action. His first instinct is to help whether it's teaching that person initially and then helping them with their need, helping them with their need and then ministering to them afterwards, Jesus jumps into action. And this morning, we're going to look at Mark chapter 8 and the first 10 verses. We're going to see a miracle that if you were with us a little while back, back in Mark chapter 6, we saw the feeding of the 5,000. Well, now Jesus is going to feed 4,000, and it's no lesser of a miracle. Some people are like, oh, he's fed 5,000 before. That doesn't mean that this is less significant or less important. In fact, there are very specific lessons to be learned within this text. And while it's similar in nature to the feeding of the 5,000, we're going to see that it's very different. Not only the crowd that's around him, but the situation. So let's dig into the text. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 in its entirety. I encourage you to open your Bible. And then as we go section by section, I'll put those verses up on the screen. Actually, Elijah will. I'm not going to take any credit away from you, homeboy. Yeah, you're doing great back there. So I'm going to read the whole text, and then we'll break it down. So this is what it says in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In those days, there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, Where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? And all God's people are like, Mark chapter 6. But Jesus says to them, How many loaves do you have? Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after he blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied, and they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them, and he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district 
of Dalmanutha. So here we are again. Jesus in this situation in a large crowd. It's a familiar situation. They have nothing to eat. And an eye for detail helps to frame this text as it can be tempting to acquit this miracle as being something that has been done before already. And I'm going to admit to you guys, prior to teaching this, I, you know, the, the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 4,000 is only recorded in Matthew and Mark. And what's fascinating about, about it is we can kind of look at that and breeze through it and be like, oh, Jesus feeds more people, on to the next story. You know, and just kind of go past it. But I don't want to do that because if we look at the detail of course we know that Jesus can feed all these people. We've already seen it happen. The disciples have forgotten, apparently, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But, but let's look more closely at the text because we'll find that the situation is not only unique to itself, but also impactful for us to see the purpose and provision of the Savior in a new light. So let me ask the initial question. It's a delicious question. Are you ready? Where did this crowd come from? And if you're like, uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's natural to, to be like, I don't know. But we've been through the Gospel of Mark, haven't we? Better question to ask, and, and maybe some of you thought of this as I asked that question, where are they? Is not, where did these people come from? It's geographically, where is Jesus right now? That's going to help us understand it. It's a better question to ask. And geographically, we know from Mark chapter 7, Jesus is in the Decapolis. Now, that's a very important part of this story because it's going to clue us in as to what Jesus is doing here. The Decapolis was a group of city-states, mostly considered a collection of ten, but if you want to include uh, which is Skitopolis, excuse me, which is on the western side of the Jordan, the other ten cities, Skitopolis would be on the western side, the other ten are on the eastern side of the Jordan. They were settled following Alexander the Great's conquest of the area in the 4th century B.C., and they're located to the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. The Decapolis was primarily a Gentile region. So you could safely say Jesus is teaching in Gentile regions, and this makes sense because where was he in chapter 7? Well, he was in Tyre and Sidon, which is a Gentile area. He travels down on the Gentile side, on the eastern side, and he's working his way through the Decapolis. Now, that may not seem very important to us, but it is. Because something happened in Mark chapter 5 that explains why this is significant. Anyone remember the man who was demon-possessed? And he wasn't just demon-possessed with a few. He was demon-possessed with so many that they called themselves legion. For we are many, they said. Some people are like, is that a Roman legion? I don't know, but there's a lot. You could just say there's a lot in this guy. Jesus frees this man in Mark chapter 5. And we read this, and this is very important. After liberating the possessed man and sending some local pigs for a swim, Jesus has the following interaction. With the, I honestly thought, thought that would get more of a chuckle. Jesus has the following interaction with the man who's now free in Mark chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. It'll be on the screen. As he's getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. And Jesus did not let him, but told him, Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. Where did the crowd come from? The ministry of the demoniac 
who was from the Decapolis, who begged Jesus not to send him away, but Jesus said, no, you need to go. Why? Because later on down the road, Jesus is going to have 4,000 people from that region gather around him, and for three days, Jesus is going to show them the love of God in human flesh. They're going to meet Jesus because of the work of this man, because he obeyed Christ. Now, let me point this out to you really quick. How many times did we see people get physically healed, freed from demonic possession, and Jesus said, shh, don't tell anyone, right? And for for some of those that were healed, he goes, go show yourself to the priest, get back into worship. For you, don't tell anybody, just, you know, bless your family, do this and that. And what did they do? They went out and they told everybody. Right? I don't know where that came from. But they went out and told everybody that, that this is all about Jesus. What did Jesus say to this man? He says, you go and you preach about what the Father has done for you in your home region. So he goes to the Decapolis and he makes it evident of what Christ has done. You guys, I believe that these people gathered around Christ in this scenario are the fruit of the ministry of this man who begged Jesus to stay. And Jesus said no. He begged Jesus to remain with him, and instead he was sent so that more people might, be, might come and be fed. And I have to say this really clearly, you guys. Even our best intentions must be directed by Jesus. Even our best intentions, they must be directed by Christ. Just because I'm like, well, I'm about the things that God wants. Jesus wants me to be with him. Well, you're not wrong. But for this man, it would have been disobedient. Get ready. Prepare yourself. You're hearing this in context. It would have been disobedient for him to stay physically with Jesus. Why? It's very simple. Hmm? You what? Good. I, I love hearing so many different, but you all said the same thing. He told him to go. It would have been a direct disobedient response to what Jesus told him to do. Go and do this. You guys, just because we have a passion to do something that seems like the right thing to do doesn't mean that that's what the Lord's leading us and guiding us to do. And you're like, how am I supposed to know? Faith and prayer. Faith and prayer together. Excuse me, I'm just choking on my own air. Faith and prayer. That's the answer. Maybe you've been begging the Lord. Right now in this season of your life, maybe you've been begging the Lord to handle a situation in a very specific way. Maybe you've been begging the Lord and you've been having doubts in your heart that maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe he's not hearing me. Maybe he doesn't even care about what I'm going through right now because I'm asking and I'm asking and I'm asking and I'm hearing nothing. This man begged Jesus to let him stay with him, but the Lord had other plans and by faith he stepped out and said, if this is what God has given me to do, I'm going to do it with 100% of my effort and 4,000 people show up to meet Jesus on the hills later. It's like Jesus knew. It's like he had this in mind all along to minister to this area. And so he sent a missionary into that region. Did it make sense to him? I don't know. Did it make sense to those around him? Doesn't matter. What matters is obedience. 
that he listened to what Jesus said, and Jesus is now going to be in a situation because this man obeyed him to work powerfully in this region. May our actions, may our lack of obedience never hinder the work of God. May we be people who are quick to submit, quick to obey, quick to be humble, and say, I don't get it, but I trust you, Lord. I trust that what you're calling me to do is exactly what I need to do. My best intentions must be directed by Christ. So Jesus calls the disciples to him. With all these people there, all these hungry people. By the way, hungry people get angry. With around all these, at least hungry mics get angry. But the people, right? Yeah. So the people are hungry. And unlike feeding the 5,000, these people have gone three days without food. They've been with him for three days. And don't miss Jesus' heart. He has compassion on them. He understands that they're hungry. They need to be fed. And what's interesting is in the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples come to Jesus and present the problem. But in the feeding of the 4,000, they wait three days. And Jesus comes to them and says, we have a problem. Isn't it fun when God comes to you and says, so we have this problem. And you're like, waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper. Like You're like, look at him. He's like, no, no, no. I want you to do something about it. What do I have? It's just me. He's like, what do you have? What do you have? What do you bring to the table? Jesus doesn't just see the crowd. He sees the needs. And before we get too far into what he asked the disciples to do, we need to, we need to realize this, you guys. He sees the needs. What good is it for the church body to see only the number that gather or to only see the projects that need to be done and not recognize the needs of the people? What matters more in God's eyes? What matters more than the people that are in front of him? That's who he came to die for. Jesus didn't come to die for a program. He came to die for people. He laid his life down for people. And if we are valuing things in this world and giving them more, more value and more of our time and more of our effort than we are to other people, I want to submit that we've become apathetic. The purpose is not getting them to show up. The purpose is not getting people to show up to your church. The purpose is to care for the people who do show up to faithfully love and feed and serve and look after them. That's the goal. That's what the church exists for, is to take care of each other. Read the book of Acts. Read the beginning of the church. The whole beautiful part at the end of Acts 2 is not only that they were doing those four things that are like key components to good Christian fellowship, but they were also giving to anyone who had need. Anyone who had needs at that time was taken care of because people were just giving it to each other. Here, do you need this? We'll take care of that. Do you need this? We'll take care of that. You don't know about other people's needs oftentimes unless you ask them. Because some people aren't going to tell you. And part of our time in prayer and part of our time seeking to serve should be, Lord, show me who's in need. How can I help? How can I care for these people? Ask them. How can we help you? So many of us don't want to be disturbed with other people's problems. A lot of times we're afraid to ask that question. Well, I'm going to say, what can I do for you? And they're going to be like, well, I really need this. I'm going to be like, I don't want to do that. That means we need to ask with the right heart. We need to ask with the right purpose in mind. So many of us don't want to be disturbed, but that's not how Jesus works. 
We talked about this before in the Gospel of Mark. We'll see it again and again, over and again. Jesus was open to being interrupted. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? What had they gone away for in the first place? He had tried to get the disciples away from the busyness, to give them a break. And the people outran them around the lake and met them there. And Jesus was moved with compassion. He allowed himself and the disciples to be interrupted. He starts teaching them. I think it's human to want to avoid the trouble of giving help. And I would say more than human, it's fleshly. It's divine to be moved with such compassion and pity that we're compelled to help. That's the heart of Christ. Be moved with compassion. Be moved to serve and to care for them. Well, the disciples have been in a similar situation before, right? Jesus comes to them and says, they're hungry. It's been three days. And we can't send them away. We can't send them away. They'll, they'll collapse on the way home. Some of them have come a very long distance. Jesus is just aware of the details. And so, you would think that the disciples would be like, all right, Jesus, do your stuff, right? They're like already, all right, here he comes. Here we go. This is where he's going to, We remember the feeding of the 5,000? Nope. Verse 4, his disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? It's interesting, isn't it? He says, how many loaves do you have? And they said, we have seven. How could they have forgotten? What is the deal with these guys? I mean, Jesus has never let them down. He's always provided. He's always been faithful. Why can't they remember? Why do they lack faith? Why are they so much like us? Why are they so much like you and I? who get into a little scrape or a little bit of trouble and immediately forget all the faithfulness of God and start staring at my problem going, this is it. This is the thing that destroys me. There is no money to replace this. I'm sorry, children. I've done my best. But apparently God hates us all. Now, you may not have said that out loud, but you fought it. <laughs> You guys, have you ever forgotten the Lord's provision in the past as soon as a new challenge is presented? I have. We're so situational. We get into these situations. We got our blinders on. We're looking at the problem. I don't see a solution. Clearly, this isn't going to work. Have you been blown away by what God, by what God can do only to find yourself experiencing doubt soon thereafter with a new difficulty in front of you. We're very much like the disciples. We're very much like them in these situations. And I'm not here to condemn all of us because I would be right there with you guys like we do this together. It's a reminder. It's a reminder of what Jesus is capable of maybe in the midst of what you're going through right now. That he is still faithful right now just as he has been that he is able to provide and care for you right now, just as he has in the past. Aren't we glad that the Lord is patient with us? Aren't you glad that 1 Corinthians 13 says that love is patient and that John says in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love? You're like, God is patient. Yes. Yes, he's very patient with me. It's not easy. I haven't made life easy on him. In Mark 6, the disciples approach Jesus with this conundrum. 
Here Jesus brings it to their attention. It's interesting, this thought just occurred to me, and it hit me as I was, as I was studying this. Like, he'd given them three days to realize the problem. Isn't that funny? The Lord had given them three days to figure this out, and then he goes to them. I think there's something in that. I think there's something in that. He'd given them three days to come to him as they had at the feeding of the 5,000 and say something, but here it is three days later. The people are literally like, do you think we could eat Peter? He looks meaty enough. You know, like, I mean, they're, they're like, the people are really hungry. They're getting desperate. It's interesting to me. Where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place? Here's the thing I want to point out about that statement. Where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? Do we consider ourselves inadequate to help others because the resource we draw from to help them is our own limited well. I've got the well of Mike, and anyone who knows me knows that the well of Mike will run dry eventually. In fact, it runs dry often. Are we trying to draw from ourselves rather than the fathomless depths of God's supply? When people are in need, am I trying to help them with that need, or am I going to the Lord, being filled by him, and then helping them? It doesn't mean I remove myself from them. I'll pray for you, brother. That's not it at all. I'm going to go to God and ask for him to fill me with what I need to care for you. Are we intentional in prayer that way? Do we come to the Lord with that heart or if we're like, I got this. Anyone who says I got this, don't got it. One of my favorite statements by any kid at a youth camp. You know, watch this, I got this. I'm like, everyone got their cameras on? It's going to be good. You guys... We in and of ourselves don't possess what's necessary to care for others God's way. We have to be filled by him. Now, the Holy Spirit in you gives you that ability. But how often are we going it alone, trying to do it on our own? If I bring what there is to Jesus, no matter how meager the supply, something pretty cool happens. Church, don't say that you would help if you had only something to give. If only I had something to give, I would, I would pitch in, but I literally don't have anything. Don't say that in these circumstances, helping is impossible. Take what you have and give it and see what happens. Bring what you have to the Lord. Don't take the bread and try and go feed people on your own. Bring what you have to Jesus and see what happens. Will any of us in this life or in the next outgive God? Sometimes we act like we are. Not only here, but like we can there. None of us will. So they bring the seven loaves to Jesus. He commands the crowd to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks. He broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, so they served them to the crowd. They take the small fish, and after he's blessed them, he serves those as well. And everyone eats, and they're satisfied. And again, we have this situation like in the feeding of the 5,000, that there's this leftover supply, but it's a little different this time. It says that they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them, and then they immediately get in the boat and travel to Dalmanutha, which is Magadha. 
Um, the miracle happens similar to Mark 6, where Jesus takes the supply. He, break, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he distributes it, and it just keeps going and going and going until everyone's satisfied and there's an abundance. He starts breaking the bread and the fish. Jesus not only satisfied the hunger of every person there, but there were seven, notice this, man-sized baskets left. You're like, man-sized? Prove it. Thank you for asking. The word for basket here is different than in Mark 6. The word for basket used in Mark 6 in the feeding of the 5,000 is a small basket that someone would carry with them. You read about them in Roman culture. Actually, they used to make fun of the Jews for carrying their little basket with them. It was basically like their day pack. It basically, it's our fanny pack, Elijah. It's those little, yeah, it's our fanny pack. So anyway, now the whole church is going to make fun of us. But like it was your day pack. It's something you put your lunch in. It's just a, it's a personal sized basket. That's what was used, and when there's baskets left over in the feeding of the 5,000, that's the word for basket that was used. But here, the word spurus is used. And we will recognize it. That's right. It's fun to say, right? Spurus. Everyone right here, spurus. Spurus. Nice. All my young adults. <laughs> I knew they'd get into that. Why is, it, why is it different? Why is it important? Because the word spurus is used in one other place, nearby to this and it's acts chapter 9 remember when paul had a little trouble in damascus and they had to lower him out the wall right they lower him out the wall they're like we got to get paul out of town he's made everybody mad and so they're lowering him down what did they put him in you guys mike got it okay you got to sit with them next time so they put him in a spurus what is it it's a man-sized basket and they lowered him out you couldn't put him in your little fanny pack Maybe we should have a youth group game at camp this year. See if they can lower me out of a tree in a fanny pack. That's not going to end well. You guys, they put him in this man-sized basket, and these are the baskets that were filled, seven of them, at the end of this miracle. That's a lot of grub. That's a lot of leftover. By all accounts, from the text and from the original Greek, you could easily say there was more food left over here than there was in the feeding of the 5,000. Now, you can also make the case, sorry, just waxing academic for just a second, that there was many more people at the feeding of the 5,000 because it doesn't include the women and the children that were likely present. It just refers to 5,000 men. Here, the feeding of the 4,000 is all-inclusive. It looks like this term includes everyone that was there. So there's probably more people at the first feeding. There's less people here, but there's a ton of leftover. And we would be missing something to not take note of it. We would be missing something. Seven large baskets left. Jesus is not just enough. He is more than enough. Jesus is not just sufficient to satiate our hunger. He is more than enough. He is well beyond that. He is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. And when these people were hungry, Jesus didn't just stop at feeding them and caring for them. There's an abundant amount left over. Is it possible? There's, two, there's a couple ways I want to look at this, but two primarily, two ways I want to look at this. One is this. In the feeding of the 5,000, primarily he was feeding Jewish people. In the feeding of the 4,000 in this region of the Decapolis, who is he feeding? Gentiles. Interesting. Who had he just served up in Tyre and Sidon? A Gentile, Syrophoenician woman, right? Dispossessed her daughter. Is it possible? 
we're to see in the feeding of the, of the multitude in Mark 6 the coming of the bread of life to the Jews. And that here in the feeding of the 4,000 in Mark chapter 8, the coming of the bread of life to the Gentiles. That we're meant to see a distinction here that Jesus is feeding all of them. A lot of hope there for us Gentiles in that. A lot of encouragement that Jesus sees our needs. I think that's possible. I'm not saying it's a slam dunk, but I think it's there. There's even a little more to see, though, in the empathy of Christ. More than the antithesis of apathy, more than his empathetic heart, his compassion towards people, we're given a powerful reminder of what Christ's overabundance of provision is intended for. Let me challenge us with one more thing. Not only does Christ save Jew and Gentile alike, we see in both the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, there's an abundance left over. There's leftovers. What happens to bread when it sits out in the open air? Most, most of you, it gets what? Stale. It's gross. Crumbles. It's amazing, too. If you have the wrong kind of, like, the really soft breads, boy, like, even a few hours sitting out on a plate in the open, as my kids never do. Um, it gets pretty stale and crumbly, right? It, like, turns into toast without the toasting. So... It gets stale, too much air, it's dry. What about too much moisture? Soggy, moldy, gross. There's no refrigerators in the ancient world. I don't know if you knew that, but it was shocking when I discovered that as I studied. And there's no refrigerators around. Todd, they needed you. But here's the thing. He's like, I don't build them, I just fix them. There's no refrigerators. What's the purpose of all this extra bread? There's a lot of leftover bread in all these baskets. What's the purpose for it? Everyone who was there had already eaten. Who do you think that bread's for? Hmm? Sure, but they can only eat so much, and I would conclude them with the everyone who ate crew. What about all the people in the regions around them? What about the people in the cities of the Decapolis? How many people could you feed with seven man-sized baskets of food? We'd safe to say some, right? I dare say. But here's the thing. You guys, <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that. I was like, some. <laughs> okay. You guys, Jesus doesn't just supply what we need. He gives us an abundance to share. What we have, we are intended to share. We look at ourselves in our Americanized culture sometimes. We're like, I don't have anything. I don't have enough. Minimum wage, medium income, family. Top 8% richest people in the world here. You're like, what? I'll say it a different way. If you are minimum wage, like medium income in America, if you fall under the term average in this country, you're in the top 8% richest people in the world. That's how hungry everyone else is. That's how undercared for, malnourished, and starved so many people in this world are. You really think that we have a problem here? I'll tell you what our problem is. We got baskets full of food that we need to start sharing. We got a load of extra that we need to start distributing to those who are hungry because Jesus has not just given us enough church transform specific he has given us an abundance to care for others and if the well is running dry 
then I will put this to us. The well is running dry because it is our own well and not the fathomless well of God. And I'm not talking prosperity doctrine. You guys know I don't roll that way. I'm talking about God's provision that's intended to be shared. Let's start giving. Let's start caring for others. Some of you are knocking this out of the park right now. And I'm trying not to make eye contact because your reward is in heaven. But some of you have been giving so generously to others. And you're blessing me through it. And I just want you to know that I'm looking at the sky. I'm not looking at you. But you're really blessing me to watch it. It overwhelms me. What began with a man's freedom from a demon, well, from many, from legion. In Mark chapter 5, begets a crowd of people who now are not only blessed by the teaching of Jesus for three days, but they've been fed and satisfied and they have all this abundance that they can share with others. Those who have been fed and filled by Christ are given an abundance that's not intended to be hoarded. It's intended to be shared. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He uses light as his um, metaphor. He says, the moment you find the light and realize that the world is in the dark, run away with your match and lend somebody else a light. And for our purpose here, I'd say maybe it's time we start sharing the abundance of provision of both spiritual and physical food with the hungry. Because you remember how I started this off at the beginning? Where the king looks at those who are on his right hand and says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. You looked after my practical needs. Wasn't that how the church started? Isn't that how the church began in Acts 2? You saw the church just giving to each other. Whoever has a need, they weren't passing it off. The church was caring for each other. They were loving each other, not just, I love you, have a good day, care about you, pray for you. Mm -hmm. They looked after the physical needs. They did what was necessary to care for one another. Don't look at what you have and say, but it's so little. Look at what you have and say, it is much in the hands of Jesus. What he has given to me is much in his hands. Let's see what he does with it for his glory. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to um, hear from your word. Lord, to learn from you, to study. And Jesus, to seek to understand how we can take what you did on this earth, your lifestyle, how you lived, and be like you. Lord, so many of us at different times in our lives have tried to do it on our own power. We've tried to, to muscle up or muscle through something. We've tried to put our heads down. And Lord, I have never seen you move more powerfully than when myself, those around me, anyone comes and humbles themselves before you. That is where we see you move. It's through humility because, Jesus, you set that example for us, as Paul said, that we should adopt the same attitude, Christ, that you had. That you didn't count equality with God as something to be held on to, but you emptied yourself. You humbled yourself even to dying on a cross. And so, Lord, you've given us the tools. You've given us the teaching and the understanding of what's necessary to have a powerful effect in this world. To bring the little that we have to you, to humbly ask you to bless it and, and to break it and to distribute it. And, Lord, do what you will with it. 
None of it is ours anyway. We are stewards on this earth. I don't possess anything. We don't possess anything. We are here to steward what you have given to us and to give it to you and say, Jesus, do what you will with it. Feed the hungry. Care for those who are hurting. But Lord, we have to come to this place where we say, I'm nothing apart from you. I'm incapable without you. But Jesus, when we come to you, when we're weary and we're heavy laden, you give us rest. You receive us because you're gentle and you're lowly of heart. And as you draw us near to yourself, Lord, I pray that as we worship in this time, that as we sing these words, Lord, we would recognize that you've fed our souls, that you've seated us with you, that you've called us sons and daughters. And Lord, we want to see this community around us know you. We want our family here in this church to be loved and well cared for. To be fed, to be given a drink, to be clothed, to be housed. Show us, Lord, how to love each other in both the spiritual and the physical ways. May we search to find needs in each other's lives and bless one another. That's how the church began, Lord. That's how we want our church to be. Work in our hearts as we worship you, we ask in Jesus' name.